I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live, and keep thy word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah, out of your law. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would lead and guide and direct us as we open up your word and study your holy scriptures. Help us to know what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds so that we can take that word that we've made a part of us and share it with others and bring food and, and life and light to other people. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right. This week's Torah portion is one of my absolute favorites. It is uh, the only Torah portion that is named after a Gentile. It is the Torah portion in the Hebrew called Yitro, but in the English called Jethro. And it's not Jethro Bodine from the Beverly Hillbillies. This is Jethro the Midianite, Jethro the priest of Midian. And uh, it was actually a Gentile who literally changed the course of, his, of Israeli history. So I want to really spend some time in this Torah portion because there's so many good lessons that we can extrapolate and take from this and uh, that we can live out for ourselves. And as I've been doing this year uh, with the Torah portion, I've been using the New Testament, the Renewed Covenant, as a springboard for our Torah portion. So I'm going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. This is uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Rav Shaul, Paul said, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win over more of them. See, that's the key of evangelism is being a servant. To the Jewish people, I identified as a Jew so that I might win over the Jewish people. In other words, when he was around the Jewish people, he, he knew how to act. He was raised Jewish. He knew exactly you know, what they expected, and he knew how to be socially acceptable in their company. To those under the Torah, I became like those under the Torah, though I myself being under, though not myself being under the Torah. In other words, being under the penalty of the law which the penalty of the law is death. The penalty of the law is all the repercussions of the curses of breaking the law, according to Deuteronomy 28. So he says, to those kind of people, I got down on their level, even though I did not do the same things they did, is what he's saying here. So that I might win over those under the, law, under the Torah. To those outside the Torah, in other words, Gentiles, like one outside the Torah, though not being outside of God's Torah, but in Messiah's Torah, so that I might win those outside of the Torah. So when he was around the Gentiles, he identified as a Gentile, not that he imitated them, not that he necessarily acted like them, but he understood their culture, their thought patterns, and he was able to get down on their level. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win over the weak. 
I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means possible I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the good news, for the gospel that is, so that I might be a fellow partaker of it. And we see the Apostle Paul actually put this into action in the book of Acts, chapter 17. So we know that, that Paul was a Pharisaical Jew. He was trained under the great Gamaliel. He was pretty much next in line to sit on the Sanhedrin, but the Lord had other plans for him. So he was not only educated in Judaism and in the Hebraic way, but he was also very well versed in Greek, Roman, Gentile culture, if you will. So in Acts 17, beginning with verse 16, it says, uh, okay, verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was aroused within him when he saw the city was full of idols, kind of like a Starbucks. There's one on every corner. So he was debating in the synagogue with the Jewish people. That was his custom to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So he was debating in the synagogues with the Jewish people and the God fears, that is the converts or those who may, may not have went under circumcision, but they were they were uh, uh, keeping God's commandments as well as in the marketplace every day with all those who happen to be there. Also, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So apparently he knew something about Greek philosophy. Kind of like Bill and Ted. They were able to philosophize with Socrates. They called him Socrates, it was Socrates. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Also, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what's this babbler trying to say? While others, he seems to be proclaiming, a, uh, be a proclaimer of foreign deities. See, the Greeks were very open-minded to learn about other religions and other philosophies. Because he was proclaiming the good news, that is the gospel of Yeshua and the resurrection. So they took Paul into the um, Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is you were talking about. For you are bringing some strange thing into our ears so that we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners visiting there used to pass their time doing nothing but telling or hearing some new thing. So Paul stood in the middle of the uh, Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see in all ways you are very religious. For a, while, for a while I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing, ah, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor... Is he served by human hands as if needing anything, since he himself gives to everyone life and, and breath and all things? For, from, for from one he made every nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having set appointed times and the boundaries of their territories. They were to search for him and perhaps grope around for him and, and find him. Yet he is not far from each of us, for in him we live, move, and have our being. That is not scripture. In him we live, move, and have our being. Moses didn't write that. Jeremiah, Isaiah didn't write that. David didn't write that. So what is Paul using here to witness 
to these Greek philosophers. He is actually quoting from um, Epimenides of Crete when he, when he says, In him we live, move, and have our being. Uh, okay, as some of you, all right, as some of you are, as some of your poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So here he's quoting, he's, he's making a second quote from another secular source, not a biblical source. So the first time he said, in him we live, move, and have our being, it's um, Epimenides of Crete. And now the second part where he says, for we are also his offspring, he quotes um, Aractus of Sicily. So he's using secular literature in order to reach the Greek philosophers, because what do they know of David and Jeremiah and Moses, you know, I mean, so he's using secular literature as a springboard to bring them to the scriptures. Since we are his offspring, we ought not to suppose the deity is like gold or silver or stone and engraved images of human art and imagination. Although God overlooked the periods of ignorance, now he commands everyone everywhere to <laughs> repent. For he has set a day on which he, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> For he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And we know that man to be Messiah Yeshua. He has brought forth evidence of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some began scoffing, but others said, we will hear from you again about this. So Paul left from their midst. But, but some men joined with him and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the council of the Areopagus, a woman named Demarius, and others with him. So we see that Paul used secular literature, philosophy, that had maybe a biblical element or a biblical theme or a biblical basis, something that he could couple with the Bible as a springboard to introduce people to the God of the Bible. So when missionaries go into a foreign country, they observe the, the culture and the religion and things very, very closely. And if there's anything they can use to that, that is similar to the scriptures or that has some sort of link to the scriptures, they will use that. There was a tribal people, I don't know if it was the Amazon, I forget where it was, but basically they had a place, a, 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 a basically a, a stone circle that if anybody committed a crime or a sin, uh, inadvertently, they could run inside that stone circle and nobody could touch them. And so the missionaries noticed this, and so they referred it back to Leviticus about the cities of refuge. When somebody commits an unintentional homicide, they can run to these cities of refuge and be safe. And so they used that to introduce that tribe to the God of the Bible. So we see that Paul was doing something very similar here. So as I said, Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul, was from a pharisaical background. And he could have been prideful, stuck up, and racist about it because, after all, there was a lot of Pharisees who were just that way. Huh, talk to Gentiles? Argh. But we see he was 100% Jewish in thought, speech, and deed, yet was still well-read, well-educated man, and learned from all cultures, even ones that persecuted the Jewish nation. He was able to culturally relate to everyone he came in contact with out of compassion and without compromising his standards or his convictions. So, um, did you know that a non-Israelite had such an influence on the nation of Israel, and it changed the course of the nation? So now we get into our Torah portion, which is uh, Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 18, and we're going to learn about Jethro.
Jethro was a Midianite. Now, what's a Midianite? So, in, if, if you go to Genesis chapter 25, it'll tell you all about what a Midianite is. So, Keturah, the second wife that, uh, or the third wife actually, that Abraham married because Sarah had passed away. Hagar was, was living somewhere else. He remarried. Now, there's some scholars and some rabbis that's, that will say that Keturah and Hagar are the same individual. But she changed her name to Keturah after she converted to, you know, the God that, that Abraham served. You know, either or, it doesn't matter. But Keturah birthed many children. And one of those children was Midian. So Midian was a son of Abraham, but he was not a son of the promise. So therefore, he was not Semitic, but he was Arabic. He would be considered an Arab today. So that's who uh, Jethro was. And Jethro was the priest of Midian. He did not worship or serve Abraham's God. He worshiped and served another God. So he was a priest of Midian. All right, so in Exodus chapter 18, now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard about everything God had done for Moses and for all his people and how Adonai had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away with her two sons. One was named Gershom because he said, I've been an outsider in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar because he said, for my father's God is my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So when God called Moses to be the uh, liberator of the children of Israel, he, for safety purposes, for safety's sake, he sent Zipporah and his two children back to his father-in-law so that they would be protected because he was getting ready to go and challenge Pharaoh. The 10 plagues were about ready to fall hard on Egypt and he wanted his children and his wife to be protected. This was, this was a man's job. This wasn't, you know, and this wasn't sexist. This wasn't racist. He loved and cared for his wife and kids enough to protect them to say, hey, look, I don't want anything to happen to you. Go back home to, to, to dad, to grandpa. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He had told Moses, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to you along with your wife and her two sons. So Jethro heard everything that happened and thought, well, it's probably safe for the family to be re reunited again. So I'll bring Zipporah and the two kids back to Moses. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. Now, I said this during the Coffee with Chris segments, and I want to reiterate it here because I think it's important. It's not necessarily my sermon notes. But we all have a lot of lost family members. How do we reach out? to our lost family members that don't believe and live the way we do. Moses gives us the example here. He treats his father-in-law, who's a pagan, who doesn't worship the same God, not even part of the same religion, but he treats Jethro with the utmost love, the utmost care, and the utmost respect. He does not challenge him on his religion or his faith. He does not condemn him for his beliefs or his culture or his way of life. But this is the example he gives. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, then bowed down and kissed him. He showed him the respect that was common for that day. Today, we may shake hands and give a bro hug. If we were in France, we may give a kiss on both cheeks. But in that time, when you wanted to respect an elder, 
you bowed down in submission and you kissed them. And that was the way that you showed love and respect. It's not that Moses was worshiping his father-in-law. He was showing him the culturally accepted respect that was due. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, then bowed down and kissed him. They asked each other about their welfare. So they just talked about normal things. How's the wife and kids? How's, how's the flock of sheep doing back in Midian that I used to take care of? You know, what's going? And went into the tent. So after they had a little small talk, catching up on each other's welfare, which shows that they weren't just shooting the breeze, but they literally cared about each other's lives. Let me know what's going on in Midian. How are things going there? Jethro's like, I already know about what happened here. And then they went into the tent, meaning they went into the tent to fellowship. So this means basically he went into the house and Moses got him a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. That's our cultural equivalent. When we want to welcome somebody into our home, we say, hey, you want a cup of coffee, want a tea? You know, maybe set a little couple of those gingerbread cookies or shortbread cookies there. But they basically had a little time of meal, a little meal and a little fellowship. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that Adonai had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, as well as all of the travail that had come upon them along the way and how Adonai delivered them. What's travail? Travail, trouble, work. trials, tribulations. Travail in French would mean works. Works, yeah, yeah like hard work. Yeah. yeah, so the travail was like all of the, the stuff they had to deal with in the wilderness to get to where they were at at that point, you know, going without food and water. and The travels, like the travel, the, the, the going through, going through, whatever they're going through. Yep. And uh, so verse 9, Jethro, remember, worshiping a different god, being a priest of a totally different religion, this is what Jethro did. Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness that Adonai had shown to Israel since he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be Adonai, blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, Jethro, being a Midianite, being a son of Abraham, though worshiping another god, probably knew about the god of Abraham, knew about Yahweh, but he had never seen or witnessed Yahweh do anything firsthand. That might be suffice it to say, he probably never even seen his gods do anything firsthand, though he worshiped them. And verse 11 says, Jeth Jethro said, now I know. It's not just a, a spiritual wish, a spiritual hope or want to, not just a, I hope it's true or I believe this. It says, I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, including the, own, the, uh, the, the God that he currently worshipped and served, the one that he was the priest of. Now I know that Yahweh, Adonai, is greater than all gods, including mine, you could say, since he has acted arrogantly against them. So he's like, wow, my God never did anything like the 10 plagues. My God never split the sea in half. My God never, you know, miraculously provided quail and manna and did all this kind of stuff. But yet your God did this and there's plenty of evidence for it. I mean, heck, the, 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 the Egyptians, are, their dead bodies are still washing up on the shore. That's proof that that happened. You know, your, your people are testifying to me what happened. The people in the camp. So they're confirming what you said, that you're not making this up. Now I know that Adonai is greater than all gods, since they have acted arrogantly against him, against them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, 
presented a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. What you're witnessing here is a pagan priest converting, getting saved, as we would say today, forsaking his priesthood of Midian. Now, tradition said that he wasn't well-respected anyway because something happened to where he had to live out in the desert with his seven daughters and raise sheep. So he wasn't really all, you know, necessarily on everybody's good side in Midian, though he was a priest. But he forsook his priesthood, forsook his God, and he presented a burnt offering and sacrifice to the God of Israel. It says, Aaron also came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, Moses' father-in-law before God. So when, when, anybody, when anybody made allegiance to another God and they wanted to convert exclusively to that faith or that religion, they would present an offering and then they would have like a fellowship meal um, you know, with that convert, with that person that just joined your faith. We kind of do that in Protestant churches today. Somebody gets saved, we have a fellowship, welcome them into the family, give them the right hand of fellowship, yada, yada, yada. So, huh? Yeah, sandwiches, yep. So basically, we're, we're witnessing Jethro converting, getting saved, if you will. And how did that happen? It happened because Moses respected his father-in-law, though he disagreed with him religiously, maybe even culturally, because he testified and gave witness to what God had done in his life and the life of his people. Those are two ways that we can witness to our lost family members. You know, Moses didn't say, hey, this is what God said. Let me open up the scroll and, and show you the things that God told me to write down. This is, this is going to be called the Torah. It's going to be really important. And I want to know. He just testified of what was going on in his life. He didn't use any scripture because there wasn't any scripture up at, the, uh, at that point. So it says that uh, Aaron, which was the high priest, and all the elders of Israel ate bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Uh, then it says, let me sure. All right, making sure I'm sticking with the scriptures here. Okay, verse uh, 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning till evening. So, you know, the people basically wanted, had little uh, spiritual questions, questions on what God's will was. They maybe had little small claims, court things going on. Hey, this guy stole my sheep or this guy broke my staff or, you know, whatever. They had like little disputes. So Moses sat from morning till night, judging these people, rendering decisions, telling them what God's will is and what God said. So, you know, I mean, he didn't even have time to take a smoke break. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Moses, no Moses, Moses never smoked. Okay. Yeah. So it says the next day, Moses sat to judge the people and they stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law, he's a new convert, a baby in the faith, got all this pagan knowledge, all this secular wisdom and knowledge behind him. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What's this that you're doing to the people? Why sit by yourself alone with all the people standing around you from morning till evening? Moses answered his father-in-law, It's because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have an issue, it comes to me, and I judge between man and his neighbor. So I make them understand God's statutes and his law. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is no good. You will surely wear yourself out as well as these people. In other words, he says, You're going to burn yourself out, and everybody's going to get sick and tired of you. <laughs> he said, Because the task is too heavy for you. 
You're not Superman. You're not Pharaoh. This is what Pharaoh would do. Because Pharaoh wasn't just a king. He was supposed he was supposedly half God. He was so supposed to Pharaoh like the, the man bird? Well, he was he yeah. the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He was Well, we're not going to okay, get well, into any of that. We're not going to uh, well, sort of. The man? Yeah. yeah, we're talking about Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. That's it. That's he was it. the king. He was supposedly half god, descended from the gods. Most of these Egyptian rulers claimed to come from Ra, the sun god. So, you know, they were supermen. Right? You know, they, they, nobody ever saw them go to the bathroom because gods don't have to poop and pee, right? So he would go to the Nile early in the morning before anybody else, and that's where Moses met him to confront him in a very vulnerable position, according to what the rabbis and sages say. Okay, we're getting a little off track here. But it says, uh, so he says, what you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out as well as these people uh, who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. So Moses, his... His knowledge of leadership came from two places. It came from being raised in Pharaoh's court. So he knew how to be a Pharaoh. He knew how to lead the people like Pharaoh. And what Pharaoh said was law, right? He knew how to put the benevolent iron fist down. But not only that, uh, according to um, extra biblical literature, before he went to Midian, he went off to Cush and became a general in the Cushite army. And that's where he got his Cushite wife, his, his uh, wife that Miriam in Numbers chapter 12 criticizes. And so he knew how to be a general, and like a general, what a general says goes. He, he is the law. So he, he knew no other way of how to be a leader. He had no idea really how to have a democratic system. So it says, verse 19, now you listen to my voice. This is Jethro talking to Moses. Baby, a baby convert, mind you. Former priest of Midian, former pagan. Now listen to my voice, and I will give you advice. And may God be with you. You represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Enlighten them as to the statutes and the laws and show them the way by which they should walk and the work that they must do. So he's like, okay, you be the lawgiver. That's your divine role. You be the lawgiver. You hear from God. You tell the people what God said and what it means. Verse 21, but you should seek out capable men out of all the people, men who fear God, men of truth, who hate bribery. Appoint them to be rulers over thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Then let every major case be brought to you. So there, so he just, Jethro just suggested to establish a bunch of small claims courts, a bunch of lower courts. And if the problem couldn't be solved in the lower court, it would go to the Supreme Court, which would be Moses, and he would make the final call. Let every major case be brought to you, but every minor case they can judge for themselves. Make it easier for yourself as they bear the burden with you. If you do this thing as God commands you, so he says, don't take my word for it. Make sure you can consult God and make sure he agrees with what I'm saying. And if so, go along with it. Then you will be able to endure and all these people with you and they will go to their place in Shalom. They will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. And Moses chose capable men out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all time, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went on his way to his own land. 
Now, before I get into the rest of what I want to say, verse 27, then Moses let his father-in-law depart. So he went back to Midian and he went on his way to his own land. What do you think Jethro now was going to do? He was no longer a priest of Midian because he, he rejected and renounced his faith in the Midianite God. He now worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel. What do you think he was going to do? Yeah, he was a sheep herder, but what else was he going to do? He was, yeah, he was going to witness. He was going to evangelize. He was, this, he was going to perform the Great Commission before Jesus even spoke the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He was going to share the good news of the God of Israel. He was going to be a missionary, an evangelist to his own people. And I think that's awesome. I think that's great. Okay, so back to this whole issue. Moses was humble enough to consider and apply the advice of a non-Israelite. So what Jethro suggested became the foundation of Israel's justice system and civil rulership. If it wasn't for Jethro, an Arab, a non-Israelite, a former pagan, there wouldn't have been a Sanhedrin. There wouldn't have been the 70 elders that eventually went up to Sinai and saw God himself and, and had a meal with God. Israel went from a benevolent dictatorship to a theocratic democracy overnight. Their whole governmental system had changed overnight, all thanks to a non-Israelite, a Gentile. Always put God in his word first and filter all secular education and advice through the word of God and consult God. So even Jethro says, don't take my word for it, consult God, and if he agrees with what I say, go ahead and do it. But don't be afraid of secular education or the implementation of the advice of a non-believer. Because we see Paul do that exact same thing, using Greek philosophy, Greek poets, to be able to use as a springboard to witness to non-believers. Moses uh, double-checked with God before implementing Jethro's advice. So we can kind of take a lesson from this. A lot of times people who are of a religious nature might be afraid of secular education. But as long as you are rooted and grounded in what you know and what you believe, you don't have to be afraid. If you're not rooted and grounded, you will get deceived. You will get lost. You will get woke. Because we see it all the time. You know, we just, we just send our kids to Sunday school and maybe youth group. But yet we don't have family devotions at home. We don't live the life of a believer at home. We don't, you know, have more involvement, do our daily devotions with our kids. And we expect the church to educate our children on God and on how to live. Two days out of the week at most is not going to, to suffice to combat a five-day-a-week secular godless educational system that we've placed our kids in. And then when they go off to university for four years, they go as a believer and come back as a pagan, come back as a reprobate, come back as an atheist. But we see that Daniel had the proper education. He was raised, you know, from, from zero to 13, you know, in the Hebraic system. He basically memorized the five books of Moses. He knew what he believed, why he believed it. He was rooted and grounded. And so when he was forced to go to Babylonian University for three years, it didn't change him. He still left Babylonian University with all the godless, pagan, secular education that the Babylonians could throw at him. And he still believed in the Torah. He still believed in the God of Israel. He still had his faith. And he still kept clean, kept kosher, and lived a proper life. And that education didn't phase him. 
So we shouldn't be afraid of secular education as long as we are rooted in God's word, know what we believe and why we believe it, and don't expect your pastor, your rabbi, your minister to spoon feed you what you are to believe. You need to discover this for yourself. So every single day, you need to have your nose in this word for yourself. Well, what if I understand it wrong? That's what the Holy Spirit's for. God gave us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into all truth. And I've been in situations where I had an idea and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that that's right, Lord. And then I watch something or hear something and it was exactly the same thing I thought. And it was God confirming, yes, I told you this. It didn't come from you. So as long as you have a personal and intimate relationship with God, you cannot get this word wrong. Don't solely depend on your pastor, your minister, to spoon-feed you the Word of God. Don't even rely on the little little daily bread devotional that you read. Those are nice and sweet, but that's just like a Tic Tac. It's like having a Tic Tac and trying to live your life surviving on Tic Tacs or lifesavers. You're going to be malnourished. It's not going to work. You've got to study the Word of God for yourself. Start out with 15 minutes a day. Just picking a passage and picking it apart, reading it. We've got all the tools available for us. Keep a journal, write things down. Ask Before you start, ask the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you and to reveal to you what God's Word says. Because you need to get into God's Word because if you don't know the truth, you're going to fall for the counterfeit. And I've, I've said this over and over and over, probably till you're blue in the face hearing it. But, you know, when, when people are trying to discover counterfeit bills, they don't, they don't study all the different counterfeits that have been made. They study the real currency. And, and after so many years of studying the real currency, a fake bill is slipped in a stack. They can find it in an instant because they know something's not right. And that's the same thing with secular education. That's the same thing with, you know, with the world, with the things of this world. If we know enough of the word of God and something that doesn't sit right or isn't right comes by, we're going to be like, ah, they spot it right away. Yeah, it's discernment. Yeah, that's a great word for it, discernment. So can we learn from pagans, from secular people? Of course we can, but we got to filter it through the word of God. All truth is God's truth, you know, whether, whether, I mean, my goodness. Satan's a liar and the father of it, but even sometimes Satan himself tells the truth. <laughs> Not saying that we have to listen to Satan or whatever, but I'm just saying, you know, all these false religions, they've got bits and pieces of truth, bits and pieces of God's word, even though that they're godless, pagan, secular, or whatever. And we take those things that are embedded in that and show how it correlates to the word of God as a springboard to witness to the very people we're trying to, trying to win. Clear as mud? Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer, and we'll sing one more song. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you for your word, and thank you that we don't have to be afraid of secular education. But your word has the solutions and the answers to everything that we, we ask about, think about, wonder about, need. And your word will, will make true or false whatever we receive. It's like taking water from the tap and putting it into a Brita filter pitcher. Every bad thing that comes out of the tap is going to be filtered through that filter, and all the bad stuff is going to be left behind, and pure water is going to be left as a result. And that's what we do when we learn secular things, is we pour it through the Word of God so that the truth of it that's hidden in it will come out, and that's what we consume, and we can just throw out and disregard the rest. So that we could be like Daniel... And learn secular things without being twisted or turned by those things. 
So help us, Lord, to be constantly in your word and devoted to your word. I mean, just like a broken clock is, is right twice a day, you know, even the most wrong sources might have a little grain, a little nugget of truth we can pull out of. So, Lord, help us to be discerning people as we live in this world and maybe try to use something of the world uh, as a springboard to point people to you, to point people to the scriptures, to bring them to you. I know that people who witness to Buddhists will, will say, well, you know what? Buddha said this, but Jesus said the exact same thing. Let me tell you about him. And they're able to bring people to Messiah through even what the Buddha said. Not that these things are necessarily true or we need to study them or immerse ourselves in them, but if we're a missionary and that's our targeted demographic, we need to learn that pagan or secular stuff so that we know how to reach those people. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. So well, here's a blessing to end the word. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone who retains her. Amen.